Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. My grandparents on both sides, and I think it was pretty uh, prevalent in that time, you know, like in this pursuit of like trying to assimilate, we're like, no, we're not teaching our kids Spanish. Like mm-hmm. we're only speaking English in the home. So much so like on my mom's side, like it went like even a, like a step further, which is like, so my mom never spoke Spanish, uh, but also like they would only eat Mexican food as a treat. Like they wanted to assimilate right. to be like fully American. So like my mom, if she sees like a, a beat, she has a, like an unconscious like like gag reflex because of having to eat like fish sticks and canned beets and like wow and like that's like it's like a weird like you know i think like that generation came here and was like no we're gonna perform whiteness so we can make it in this city that's gonna forget us anyway new york i know you What's up, humans? We are back with another episode of La Mescla after a little bit of another hiatus. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm feeling I'm feeling uh, uncharacteristically motivated uh, the last couple of days. And I'm really excited to be bringing you more stuff um, there. There soon will be a Patreon for this show, as well as some of my other projects. So if anybody would love to support that, um, that link will be coming up very soon. And I will spam it to all of you because, uh, you know, for anybody who likes the show or likes the stuff that I do, um, I would really love if you would support it so um look out for more announcements for me either here on the podcast or on the instagram uh, where i will be sharing all that good stuff with you very soon um but uh i'm sick of myself talking as i always am so let's get into this week's guest who i'm very excited about our guest this week is the wonderful wonderful hilarious david perez uh david and i met at a at a really weird stand-up variety show that i used to produce with friend of the show friends of the show andrew colson and jen wilson shout outs to them uh david is a brooklyn-based by way of la originally writer performer stand-up comic um, and by his own description, homosexual Mexican man. <laughs> um, he he was a house performer at the UCB back when it was in New York, for people who were in the know about that, um, RIP to UCB New York. Um, his work's been seen at the Steppenwolf Theater, the venerated Chicago institution, the Steppenwolf Theater, as well as spaces all over New York. He's also a screenwriter uh, and just uh, an all-around multi-hyphenate artist and just like really, really great human. Uh, I was really, really excited to talk to him. And I think you're gonna enjoy the wide-ranging and uh, it's very funny conversation, I think. Uh, I think you're really gonna like this one and I can't wait to bring you more stuff. So without further ado, here is my conversation with David Perez. Oh, dope. Okay, hi. Hello. Hi, David. Hi. What's going on? Wow, he went right into podcast voice. We love it. Yeah, I know. I'm like, uh, if you're trying to protect your home, Simply Safe, brought to you by La Mescla. I mean, do, do you have, uh, should I be doing an ad for something that doesn't give you any money? 
it doesn't matter. I don't make any money off of this anyway. <laughs> really, I periodically get checks for less than four dollars based off of the advertising on this show. So what are you gonna do? That's I mean that's four dollars more than I made. So there you All go. Right. You know? Hell yeah! Hell yeah! Uh, so hi, thank you so much for being on La Mescla. Welcome to La Mescla. Uh, let's start it off the standard way, which is just um, introduce yourself to my fan base, whom I affectionately refer to as my mom's friends, because about 16 people listen to this show, and it's mostly people my mom has begged to do so. (laughs) Well, I'm David Perez. I'm a comedian, writer, and actor. Um, I'm originally from Los Angeles. I'm the youngest of nine. I'm third generation. Um, You you can tell that I'm Mexican because I have nine brothers and sisters, and... um, yeah, no, I'm just ex- I'm I'm based in Brooklyn and uh, and currently trying to move upstate. <laughs> what? Why? Um, because I want to live out my fantasy of being an elderly gay man, where I like you know look out a window while a chicken roasts slowly in the background. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, but it. but the problem is is that all my money is tied up in my uh, my parents still being alive, so it might not happen. <laughs> <laughs> you had me for a second because I was about to be like, you have money? That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. So, um, no, I'm excited to do this. Thank you so how... much for having me. Oh, of course. This is a total pleasure. How how far upstate are we talking? Well, so we're actually going on Thursday. Uh, we're, we're trying to do like, it's, okay, this is what white people do. It's spelled accord. Tell us. Tell us. A-C-C-O-R-D. Accord. Right? That's fancy. They named a fucking t- a Honda after it. But I went up there and, you know, some lady with a rat's nest on top of her head was like, it's actually pronounced Ackard. And I was like, okay. So it's Ackard. And then another woman with a different version of a, a rat's nest said to me, it's actually called Accord. And so um, I'm going to move okay. up there to become the mayor. And I'm going to make sure, I'm going to rename the city phonetically pronounced town. Because fuck that bullshit. Like, why are people trying to change just the way the language works? And their language is stupid. But anyhow, um, that, so, honestly, that sounds like way too much. But is the are you were you fucking with me, or is the town is the Honda Accord actually named after that town? That's not real, right? No, that's not real. I don't. I don't think I, so. I don't smoke weed, folks. I definitely <laughs> didn't. I definitely didn't smoke weed at mm-hmm. some point today. <laughs> um, that's awesome. That's dope. Uh, how far is, is that? How far is that away from New York? It's like two and a half hours. It's like a like Ooh, if you if that's you, that's upstate. Yeah, it, it's 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 okay. Like it's like if you go to New Paltz and take a left, and um, so it's like just hippie enough where it's like like it's not like Trump flags. It's like don't tread on me hippies who are like gay marriage is great. You should be able to like smoke weed. We have illegal mm-hmm. assault rifles. Um, okay, okay. So it, it's like it's it's really like, honestly, it's the it's the town square of democracy. That's what it is. It really, I'm, it 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 really. You're does. literally already the mayor. You're literally already being the mayor right now. Here in Accord, we believe that you actually. I, I there's nothing that seems more, I would say, dangerous to my mental health than ever being in public office. Like I've just yeah. I fucked too many dudes. Like it's gonna be like. I, like, it's like there's going to be too many skeletons that come out of my closet. That's actually a checkbox on the form to apply to to run for public office. It's like, <laughs> if you've if you fucked over this threshold of dudes. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's like tax brackets. It's like, you know, like, oh, if you fucked 100 dudes, 
you 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 actually can't be part of municipal government. So. Oh my God, we're really starting this one out <laughs> <laughs> on a really G-rated note. I yeah. love it. Uh, hello, so, talk to, to me. Your... <laughs> talk to I... me about talk to me about growing up in LA. What part of LA uh, did you grow up in? So uh, my family is like my my grandparents when they moved uh, to LA from Mexico, like mm-hmm. in the twenties, were based in Santa Monica. So like I have like deep roots in Santa Monica. When I say Santa Monica, people are like, Oh my God, fancy. And I was like, mm. Santa Monica, when I grew up there, like, you know, cause I'm like famously uh, 41, like was a very different place. Like it wasn't like where like Gwyneth Paltrow, like sold her uh, vagina amulets. Uh, it was like, oh, we love it. Love. It was like, it was, cra- it was like, it was, it wasn't like scary, crazy, but like Venice. And so I lived on the Venice, Santa Monica border. Uh, but then my whole family moved to the Valley. Uh, so like San Fernando, very specifically Silmar. So like we, when we, when I was born, we were in like Silmar, Pacoima, and then we moved to the Santa Monica Venice border. And, uh, I don't know, LA is weird. Like you grew up in LA and you're like, like people want to move there to like be famous. And I'm like, it didn't, it, it doesn't, it didn't seem like this crazy oasis. But now as I like older, I'm like, oh my God, I live so fucking close to the beach. Like, why did we ever move? Yeah. Well, everything seems, everything seems normal slash boring when you're that age. It's like odd. It's probably similar for people who grew up in the city. It's odd to see, you know, tens of thousands of people flock to the place where you just like grew up, you know? Totally. And then people like also like, I don't know if you experienced this, like you grew up here in, in New York, right? Not in the city, just outside of the city in Westchester County. Well, you know how, like, so people, like, explain L.A. to me, like, people who had, like, lived there for five years, and they're like, so, like, L.A.'s a vibe. And I am always want to be like, <laughs> I want to be like, L.A. is um, a kaleidoscope that, like, continually paves over its history and becomes something new. And so it's like, any anyone who's been there, like, ten years like mm. sure they've learned about what LA was and what it is now it's like but it it's changed so much and it's so weird because like LA is a uh, LA is more of a concept for people who want to move there and when i grew up there i'm like yeah it's hollywood and like dreams and it's beautiful but i'm also like the reason i love it so much is that like what i can't do in new york is i can get good fucking mexican food which i cannot in new york and i'm going to say on your podcast new york is garbage for Mexican food. This is the shit talk that LA people always bring. And that's fine. Like, take Mexican food. That is fine. We have everything else. Every- we have everything else. And I, I chose to live here. Like, no one, like, put a, you know, a gun to the back of my head. I love living here. But, like, like I, like, went and got nachos one pl- one time. And not that, like, nachos is, like, the Mexican, like, holy grail of food. But they, like, laid it out, like, 12 chips with, like, like a little dollop of cheese on top of it. And I was like, it's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. I mean, I think it's a crime against humanity. Like mm-hmm. I contacted the Hague. <laughs> Wait, so where in the order of the nine siblings are you? Nine kids. That's wild. So because I'm a stand up comedian, it's probably clear I was the youngest and am the youngest of nine. Um, I mean, you're looking at the youngest, but I'm one of two. Although my mom was one of six, which like there's your Hispanic heritage right there. My mom's the youngest. Or my mom, sorry, my mom's the middle of ten. My dad's the Oof. middle. My middle of eight. So, Oof. like, I have more. I think I have more first and second cousins 
than like the population of Bushwick. Mm-hmm. I don't know all I their names. This. Like I literally, I like that's why I don't live in LA because if I like fucked a random dude, there's a very good chance that we could be <laughs> biologically related. Oh, but you would you'd kill at bringer shows though. You'd kill at bringers. Oh, <laughs> so many imagine? cousins to draw from. Oh my god. I mean, it'd be great. I mean, it would. I I literally, you know, like I I would. I've already exhausted all of my friends here in New York for bringers. <laughs> Uh, but it would take me like a good ten years in LA, right? To uh-huh, like to uh-huh. go. Th- but I seriously, I met somebody randomly at a party in LA, and I was like, "You look familiar." And then we're like, realized that we like were first cousins, but did not know, like, but like didn't wow. even know each other's names, which is crazy. That's wild. That's wild. So our so you mentioned that both of your grandparents came here from Mexico. Are both of your parents Mexican? Yeah. So grandparents on both sides came from Mexico. Got it. So, like, my my uh, my grandfather is from, like, a really small town called uh, Tepatitlan. And my grandma, I believe, is from Chihuahua. I, 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 like, should know this, but I don't. And then on the other side, uh, I'm, I'm a little unclear. Like, you know, um, like, my grandfather's origins are, like, nefarious. Like, we think that he's, like, you know, from, like, Zacatecas. But, like, mm-hmm. we never really figured it out. Um, but they're fully dead, so uh, can't ask them those questions. Got you, got you, got you. Sorry to hear that. Well, you, I love the use of fully dead. Yeah. I love the use of fully dead. I mean, they were like dead to me before they were dead to the world. You know what I mean? I'm there it is. There it is. We talking Catholics? Because that sounds very Catholic to me. Oh, very Catholic. But also, like, uh, they practice this religion that I feel like is, like, kind of um, spread across this country like wildfire which is alcoholism and uh mm. they were very devout like very very devout uh, especially on my death oh oh every i mean they went every day <laughs> i love it i love it they did the morning mass baby my earliest memory of my grandma is so uh her name is lupita my earliest memory of her is like my dad dropping us off to like on like a wednesday morning and she is making us breakfast, which was always like a can of manilo. And she would like like be stirring the pot and having a Bloody Mary and like literally like a morning show was on TV. And I was like, honestly, I identify. Vibes, vibes, I love it. So so were you like, were you speaking Spanish in the house? Also, are you, are you in a house with all your siblings? How like spread out are all of you age wise? Like I'm talking like early years. So in the early years, there was like four of us at a time. So like uh, by the but by the time it was like me in high school, it was just me. Um, and like, mm. you know, like we we spread across, you know, we spread all across California. Um, as far as Spanish goes, it's like one of the things that like bugs me the most about. I, I, I mean, I think it's a I mean, I'm, jokes aside, this is like a fucking racist thing about being Mexican in L.A. is that mm. in the 50s, if you spoke Spanish in public schools they would put you in um they put you like in like it wasn't an esl class it was like it was like a special needs uh, a special needs class meaning you would not get an education so my grandparents on both sides and i think it was pretty uh prevalent in that time you know like in this pursuit of like trying to assimilate we're like no we're not teaching our kids spanish like we're only Mm -hmm. speaking english in the home so much so like on my mom's side like it went like even a, like a step further, which is like, so my mom never spoke Spanish, uh, but also like they would only eat Mexican food 
as a treat. Like they wanted to assimilate to be right. like fully American. So like my mom, if she sees like a, a beat, she has a like an unconscious like like gag reflex because of having to eat like fish sticks and canned beets and like wow and like that's like it's like a weird like you know i think like that generation came here and was like no we're gonna perform whiteness so we can make it in this city that's gonna forget us anyway Absolutely. And I mean, in the in the history, the history, in, in the time that I've done this show, like, I feel like everybody that I've spoken to when we're talking about parents or grandparents, whether it's uh, Hispanic or, or not, the culture in question, like, there's always a spectrum from, like, fully assimilator to, like, fully, like, holding on to, like, the home culture, so to speak. And I mm-hmm. always think it's really interesting to see where each family falls, because I feel like mine is kind of... In between, I'm first generation. My mom moved here when she was like 21, 22, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so I don't have like as I don't even have grandparents who like have anything to do with America. So like I don't really have the experience of that time period where it was much more common for because of like much more overt racism for for people to be like outright assimilators. So I feel like that's why I had a little bit more of the culture in my household growing up, but I'm always fascinated by how different ha- families have handled that negotiation because it is exactly what you said, it is like the pressure to perform whiteness at all times. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Absolutely. And it's also like, it's, I mean, there's like, you know, you know, to talk about capitalism in here is that like, you know, I think about a, like how that was for my grandparents. Like when they moved into a very Mexican neighborhood in Silmar and Pacoima to be more specific, um, Mm -hmm. with surrounded by their community. And that's like cousins, that's like second cousins, brothers and sisters, and like tried to perform a little bit of like, you know, preparing them preparing their kids to, to navigate this world like by like borrowing some things from whiteness but still we were like like that family very, very obviously like we're very Mexican but my mom is somebody who like you know grew up in a really poor fucking neighborhood like mm. did not have the resources to go to college did something amazing which is like she like made her way in the world of banking and like just like rose because she was good at it and because of that, to do that, I think that she had to actually push us, meaning like like me and my siblings, into whiteness a little bit more. Like she like like she wanted to she she wanted to give us something that she was never given. And so like we you know we moved to Santa Monica and everyone was like, oh that's a really dangerous neighborhood. But then it was like, oh well that neighborhood's too white. And um, and so we ended up being raised like you know like fifty percent like with our cousins and like our people but then 50% like like my contemporaries in high school were like it wasn't just mexican kids it was like a lot of white kids a lot of black kids a lot of mexican kids a lot of asian kids very mixed but we were part of this community that i think was trying to perform whiteness to get ahead like i don't know like to get ahead in this weird caste system we have in this country 
Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's like tale as old as time as far as like American high school experience goes. I was about to ask you about like what the, you already laid it out, but I, I was about to ask you sort of what the like demographic layout of your high school was. Because uh, I'm, this like, again, I feel like the word negotiation keeps coming up, but this a, a negotiation of like, oh, 50% kind of like with my people and my cousins, my family, whatnot, and 50% with the mishmash of like whatever it means to be a teenager in American culture, I think is such like a weird dance that we're constantly doing. Like what, what kind of crowd in high school did you find yourself like falling in with? Like what was your social circle like? Um, well, so I, believe it or not, um, as a, uh, a devout extrovert, did not have friends in high school because I was like, you know fat and gay at the same time which do not recommend rough rough um, cocktail but like <laughs> rough cocktail but like you know if we like back it out a little bit like when we so in where i grew up there was a like an experimental public school um that was like a, a an alternative school that like kind of like borrowed pastiches from like montessori or whatever you don't need to know mm-hmm. that about that, but it was like a public school that was founded by the community, and one of the people was Jane Fonda, which is very weird. Um, okay, random, but random. Santa Monica. So I mean, she's my best friend, uh, and so um, <laughs> she's my mom, actually. But it's like, a, a, like it's like a, it was a public school that was focused on like collaborative learning, which is the reason that like when I'm like at a bar trying to tabulate my tab, I'm like, what? Like I like have to count on my hands, uh, but like. That school was very specifically like, like, was trying to feel, and you know, it was like late 80s, early 90s, so like lots of flaws there, was trying to feel as integrated as possible. So, like, it was truly a school, like, you looked around and you're like, holy shit, it's like, like, it's everybody, which I thought was, Mm -hmm. which I thought, like, for me was great because I really like, like, my friend group looked like the world. But then, like, you know, when we would go, like, see my cousins in different places, like, I'd be like, oh, my God, like, all of their friends are Mexican. All of their friends are, or, like, you know, cousins of us who were, like, a little bit more affluent than us, like, moved to Northern California. And, like, all Mm -hmm. of their friends were white. And it was, like, a, it was interesting because I think, like, it did this weird thing where I was, like, oh, like, I didn't think about identity for myself. Like, I didn't think of myself as a Mexican. I thought of myself as just as, like, as a kid. But then when we moved into more wider spaces, like we moved to San Francisco for three years, I was like, oh, I started to understand how like I lived in this like weird like echo terrain. Like I wasn't white enough, but I also wasn't Mexican enough. And, you know, like and and I think that was uh, I think that's something I honestly I think like continues into my adulthood, like where I I feel like I navigate both of those spaces. Absolutely. I mean, uh, that's why I started this shit. Like, I couldn't have said that better myself. About how old were you when this turn started happening, when you mentioned you moved to San Francisco? We moved at the perfect time to move a child, which is uh, in the summer between eighth, uh, seventh and eighth grade. That also was like the first summer that I was like, I think this boner is directed at a dude, you know? And uh, uh... And so, like, I was, like, you know, uh, aforementioned fat and gay, and I loved uh, to wear vertical striped shirts, which made me look like uh, like a, a, a Cape Cod home. And, mm-hmm. um, and Getting so, a really vivid picture. It's, I mean, it's, like, like, I had glasses that were so big, and obviously this is a, clearly a visual medium, um, but, like, for <laughs> people in the, po- like, my glasses were so big on my fat little face 
that I could literally lick the lenses of my glasses if I had to. So like I was like peak awkward braces. And the only way for you to know that is if you did that. I mean, I ate things with butter on it and if butter got on my glasses, I'm not leaving that shit on the table. You know what I mean? Um, um, so it was, you know, so we, we moved to San Francisco. My mom met a dude um, and we moved to San Francisco and, and we lived, uh, we, we, we lived with him and, uh, and with my, my stepsisters and it was just culture shock. Like all these kids were just like really affluent, uh, very, very white, like the whitest school that I'd ever seen in my entire life. Um, and then also like kind of mean, um, sure. And so, uh, and it was, and I also just like, at that point was like, kind of like trying to figure out, I was like, where do I, where do I fit in the world? And like, and, and I think a lot of like, a lot of people who like you and I kind of like, like kind of live in this, uh, ephemera between these different cultures, like there is no North star to look at, you know what I mean? And mm. there was no like fat gay kids that also like were into rock and roll, you know, like there was none of that. Like it took me into my 20s to figure that out and so i think like when i was a kid i think at that moment it was like a very it was like a, it was a very dark time for me but also like um it made me realize that like your identity and who you are um is something that you have to like fight and negotiate for yeah yeah i mean i couldn't have said it better myself i always i always find myself using the words negotiate or dance or dance around or something like that um, so you stayed at this San Francisco place all through high school? No, actually. Um, so they, my parents said what was also great is to move somebody between seventh and eighth grade, <laughs> have them do eighth grade, ninth grade and 10th grade where I was like, oh, okay, I'm, st I'm starting to like, cause you know, theater, uh, as all, you know, the, the place where all, uh, you know, fat gay kids find their voice. Um, right. Well, I was going to ask if performing was already in the equation, but it sounds like we got our answer. Oh, yeah. Like, I just was like, oh, yeah. Like, it's, like theater is where I, I found who I was supposed to be. And mm -hmm. and then I just started to make friends. And I was like, you know, like, like actually like kind of like fell into like a, a, a group of some like really cool kids. And uh, and then we moved back to L.A. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then like 11th and 12th grade, I just was like. I was like, okay, I, the eye, my eye was on the prize and that prize was getting to go to a theater school. And I just like, I didn't really have friends in high school. Um, mm -hmm. and I, uh, or those last two years of high school and I actually like fucking blessing really was, uh, I got to leave school every day at lunch to go do like to work at a theater and like, like where I learned how to like build sets and design lights. Whoa. And, and How'd you swing that? Was that like a internship program or something? Yeah. Like it fulfilled like a bunch of my credits and like, I like, you know, like was very good at English and, and history. Um, and, but was in remedial math. And <laughs> so like all I, I only credits I really had to fulfill were like, were like, you know, uh, like geometry, which I also failed twice. Uh, well, if you're building stuff, then that's kind of in there. Honestly, do we need algebra? Do we need do we need geometry? Or do we mm. do we? Our net, me and my partner's nephew. The mayor is speaking. Yeah. Everybody, pay attention. The mayor is speaking. Here at Ackerd, <laughs> math 
is abolished. <laughs> abolished math. Um, that's my platform. Uh, no, but I'm like, curious if anybody. I've always been curious of like. Sorry to interrupt you, but I've always been curious of like what it's like to be a theater kid in LA, which is so not a theater city. Are people like looking at you weird at all? Like for you to be into theater so hard? I mean, I think every. So it was weird. So like this theater that I fell into had like a really strong youth program. So I was like, I was in the child production of Oklahoma as Judd Fry. Yes, yes, but yes. 75% of the kids um, that were also part of this theater came from, uh, it's called, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but they were all, they're all Scientologists. So it was like, what? So, what so it was like practicum for them to like then become like you know like to to, um to use like you know like the scaffolding of that um of that uh multi-level marketing uh religion to become famous and um so like actually there was like a big theater like there's a big theater thing in in la but it's not like legit theater like it's like musicals and like and everyone's like ever i mean i feel like as a all the kids there are using it to be like let's get into a good theater school. And like, I mean, I remember like all the kids of my generation, like they all like went to NYU and like mm-hmm. Carnegie Mellon. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't go to the the Juilliard of the West like I did, which is Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle. The Juilliard of the West. Okay, we love it. I mean, we I, love it. I love that college, but I... I, I Wait, I, do you remember, and do you remember any of the Scientology kids? What were they, were they... Were they like, I, I'd imagine they might just seem like normal kids or were they weird? Yeah, no, it was me and Leah Ramini and, uh, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I don't remember. I mean, they were all just normal. I mean, they're just normal kids who were like part of their parents' right. world, you know? And, uh, um, they all did get picked up in, I, I do remember this, like they all like, none of them got into a car with less than like, like a $60,000 sticker price. Like it was all very fancy. Whoa. And I was like, yeah. it's like when you like watch those movies, like in England where a kid's walking down the road, but then the rich kid gets pulled up, like gets like picked up with like a, <laughs> like a Bentley or whatever. Um, but honestly, good for them. You know what I mean? I'm sure, I don't know. I'm sure they have like. They're living the American dream. They're living the American dream, paying no taxes, doing their thing, <laughs> abusing people. We love it. Honestly. Yeah. I mean, like if I could be John Travolta's child, I would. <laughs> Shout outs to John Travolta's children. Yes. Who I am, I'm assuming exist. I don't know. I think so. Oh God. I mean, dark. I think one of his, one of his children oh, no. died, right? Uh, I don't know. I really stepped in it. If that's true. I mean, I mean, I, I stepped in it for you. So <laughs> moving on. <laughs> I'm feeling this one so, will make the podcast. <laughs> no, it definitely will. I barely edit. Mm-hmm. And also no one cares. No. Uh, so, Juilliard of the West. Talk to me about like was there was there a culture shock moving into that new environment? Where like where is the school? Like talk to me about that. So I went to this school, Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle. Um, best decision I ever made. All of my best friends, like literally, like I was last night was with my friends that I've known since 1998 when I when I started uh, oh, yeah. college. Um, it was great. I mean, again, it was like you know I think it was. I was in a very, very white space um, as somebody who, like, did not feel comfortable in white spaces, but also didn't feel comfortable, doesn't feel comfortable in, like, in spaces. Like, I I always don't feel Mexican enough, you know? Um, As far as, like, people of color in my, in my, my class of 50 when we started, 
there were mm. five people of color and two and three of those people uh, yeah five people of color and two and, and uh three of us were uh were, were pe- like we're latinx you know what i mean and uh mm-hmm. and then like um and a lot of people of color left you know like as we got like it because like you know one of the things like was really hard about that school is that i i, I remember like we we talked about it and i feel, feel the school's pretty responsive but like we were performing things like we're always like kind of like contorting ourselves into like white characters and like none of us like like ever like perform things that we would perform in the real world you know like um and like you know it was different for me and like this is a privilege but like because i like you know am a light-skinned mexican man like i could i I ostensibly like would go in for everything like and so it was right but then i think of like my black counterparts and my counterparts who do not present as white they like they had to like you know they they never played a part that was um anywhere in proximity to who they were as a person or their lived experience and i think Mm. you know that's probably that i mean i'm sure that's changed there now like I, i still am pretty connected to my college but i think like um back then that wasn't part of the conversation it was like oh you get classical training and like you know hopefully you work um but even back then like you know you would every production i would go to i'd be like like if there was a person of color it was uh it was a rare thing right yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a, a very common tale for a lot of theater programs, honestly, to this day, to this day. Yeah. Though, something fucking crazy about this program, I'm going to tell you this right now. Dímelo. Which is literally the exact opposite of what I said. Freshman year, the first thing that every freshman acting student does okay, is a scene from Raisin in the Sun. <laughs> No. So I played no. Walter. <laughs> no. Which, like, you know, like, in, in our in our teacher, like our 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 acting teacher, was a queer black man, and I just okay. could not. And I, he didn't decide the curriculum, and I just was like, how many years did he have to watch, like, white kids butcher? Lorraine Hansberry's words and that's wild so it wasn't his call it was I mean I I, you know I I guess I don't know the facts of it but like in my mind that's wild the curriculum is like everything's baked in and you know like they use the same thing it's a it's a it's a cut program meaning like it cuts at freshman year in the middle of the year freshman year at the end of the year in the middle of sophomore year and the end of sophomore year and then junior and senior year you stay so like okay. 50 of us got whittled down to 25 oh shit okay yeah i mean it's it's nuts i was on provisional basis my entire time there which i loved like i was always like what does provisional basis mean that i was gonna get kicked out if i didn't do better and every year i didn't get kicked out but i was still like you better do better. I mean, I literally... But do better at what? Do better at your acting stuff or the, like the gen ed, like the other credits that you had to to get? I had a uh, attitude problem. And uh, yeah. I have a... Um, I literally have it framed. Uh, I wish I had it. I don't have it close to me, but um, uh, I'm still really close to the, the theater chair that was the chair of the department. And when I love this and he thinks it's funny, but uh, I have a letter that, that says that I am caustically critical and heedlessly disrespectful 
And mm-hmm. it makes me laugh every time I think of it because like, so I was always like, you know, I, you know, a youngest of nine. That sounds like a stand-up comedian to me. Exhaustically critical. <laughs> Needlessly. I love it. And I just don't like it when people tell me what to do. And uh, especially in a scholastic setting, which is stupid. Uh, but um, I mean, I've uh, maybe not as it sounds like you were maybe more outward about it than I was. But I've definitely always had like issues with authority, specifically in school settings. I was always like a very, very bad at respecting teachers authority. I got kicked out of a class, voice and speech class, um, because um, one of my one of my my classmates, uh, um, he's vegan, which you need to know for this story. Um, um, we were doing Suzuki, which is like you know a very like physical technique to get to your voice, whatever. Um, and he farted, and it smelled really bad because he's a vegan. Um, it's like it's like the devil's breath, and I started laughing. And my voice and speech teacher was like, what's so funny? And I just was like, stood up. I was like, you know what, Ellen? Farts are fucking funny. Farts are funny. That's right. And I was right. Stand up for comedy. Stand up for comedy. Nothing comes before comedy. Nothing. That's right. Um, That's right. And so uh, that kind of, that's the behavior that got me almost kicked out of the program. But, you know. That's bullshit, though. That's just being a human being. Like, they should, like, they should know that. That's dumb. I'll fight them. You know what? Honestly, if you can't. If you can't fucking acknowledge that farts are funny, you don't deserve them. You know? You don't deserve a sense of smell. That's a fact. That's a fact. Fact. Did you you move to New York immediately after school, or did you go back to L.A.? I had a long-ass journey to get to this place. Um, I I lived in Seattle. I stayed in Seattle after college. I acted uh, professionally with quotation marks around it, meaning I acted all the time. But I also uh, bartended a lot, and it was great. Um, I got an Mm -hmm. internship to work at Steppenwolf in Chicago. And so I went to Steppenwolf and like my focus in college was original works. So like it was an acting degree, but I also like wrote and directed plays and I went to Steppenwolf and, uh, and then I lived in Chicago for like a decade and I, uh, I founded a theater company and I, uh, Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. it was great. I directed a play at fucking Steppenwolf. It was great. You know, like I, uh, let's go David. And you know, I, I had this theater company for like, you know, almost seven years. And at one, I looked up at one point and I was like, Oh my God, I'm helping other people's plays come to fruition. I'm good at rehearsal rooms and I'm helping actors be good at what they're doing. And I did not like it anymore. And, um, my other identity uh, is like I, um, I work at I uh, was a recruiter in advertising, and uh, I got a job offer in San Francisco, so I went and I was there for a few years and was like, I'm going to take a break from being creative, and that was a very big mistake. And uh, and then a friend of mine. And this was this was after Chicago. After Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. So like, and then I was there, and a friend of mine was like, Hey, will you do stand up at my wedding? And I was like, I've always wanted to do that. And I did it. And it was like, like, it, it was like, like, I, like doing black tar heroin for the first time. I was like, oh. And then uh, right then and there, I was like, I can't live here anymore. And I moved to, I moved and a to. And wedding, a wedding where people know you, like, that's a good, that's a solid first room. I like that. If you bomb at a wedding with all of your friends around you, you are not, like, you you should be a banker and live in the suburbs of Atlanta. <laughs> um, uh, there's some bankers that live in the suburbs that are probably really funny. I don't know. T- 
totally. And mm-hmm. and they're the funniest person at their branch of, you know, <laughs> That's right. first chameleon or whatever it's called. I just made up a weird bank night. First chameleon. I love yeah. that. But yeah, and then I moved to I moved to New York uh, and I uh, I got here and I started doing stuff at UCB and I started doing open mics. And um, seven years later, here I am. Mm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. What? So have you? So let's get into because we still have some time. Let's get into how you've found like, not, not that anybody expects you to like be like, oh, I've I've found the scene. I like have mm-hmm. a fully like structured like thesis on what the New York scene is like. But I'm curious because you've spent a certain amount of time in the artistic scene in a few places now. So I'm I'm curious about what about uh, pursuing comedy in New York or even just performing art in general because I know it wasn't specifically comedy in Chicago or specifically comedy in LA or SF, but what, like how, what, what was your, what was the process of building a network and building community and like, how did stand up factor in with some of the other stuff that you were pursuing? You know, I feel like I got really lucky. I mean, you know, I think like a lot of folks who moved to New York, like, you know, we all have strong opinions about UCB New York. Um, but it's true. <laughs> RIP. Yeah. Rest, rest in peace. Um, But like, it made me a lot of friends and it like, it built a community, like, I mean, like, you know, being on, on Lloyd for a year, like, Mm -hmm. you know, was really, was amazing. Which for my mom friends, this, these are house performing teams at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in (laughs) in New York. It's a venerated comedy institution that kind of doesn't exist in New York anymore, but still exists kind of in the ether. It's, it's a whole lot of comedy drama you really don't need to hear about, but that's what we're talking about. We all like made a lot of money and were treated with a lot of respect. Um, that's, uh, that's my, that's my <laughs> biggest takeaway. Uh, but, uh, you know, like Lloyd was great. Cause I like everyone on my team I loved. And, uh, but also like I had an indie team and like, whereas like, I don't like, like improv was something that I did when I moved here. And I think it was a, it was a way of like, to like work the rust off of my, uh, my performing thing but it really did like give me a broad kind of understanding of like who like who the comedians of the world were here and um and i luckily like so improv was always sort of like kind of a it wasn't the writing was always the the main focus if i'm understanding it correctly yeah writing and performing like writing and like like writing and like and you know uh, and uh, you know like the i'll always have the actor inside of me and like and i and i've been doing a lot of i mean like i've been doing a lot of commercial acting so you know if you ever see yeah, a mega cool. if you ever see a megabus commercial with me and snooki remember that i got paid. are you dead ass you did a commercial with snooki i did a commercial with snooki a megabus commercial I'm going to find that and I'm going to freak out. You're talking to somebody who during quarantine became a huge unironic Jersey Shore fan. So I'm very into that. I'd like to go on record about something that's not controversial. Mr. Mayor, let's go. Snooki was a fucking delight. Let's go. (laughs) She was a professional. Uh She was very funny. So nice. And like on time, camera ready did her thing and was and was great and I expected her to be a monster. Um, she is two foot eleven, uh, and I was shocked. Like I felt like um, I felt like Andre the Giant next to her, uh, but she was great and I had a great time and she was a pro. Like in a way that I was like so impressed with. Um, and uh, I don't know. It was that, that was. <laughs> I can't tell you how happy I am to hear to have this information. I really can't tell you. I was watching Jersey Shore last night, 
<laughs> like I'm I'm dying right now. You know, I used to think she was horrible, and like when that guy hit her in the face, I was like, that is was horrible and disrespectful. But she's also kind of annoying. But then I was like, no, that's the character. And she's like, now she's like a mother of like four kids and like, you know. Yeah, she's a whole ass person. Yeah. A whole ass person. You know what? Fucking Snooky Redemption started on this podcast. Absolutely. I don't, she doesn't need this podcast. She does not need this podcast. (laughs) She probably has a podcast. I'm assuming she does. Yeah, like Meatball Incorporated or something like that. I I would subscribe. (laughs) I'm going to look it up after this. So how about as as stand up evolved? Well, you're also like into. I, I think I read that you had a pilot that like won a couple of awards and stuff. Like how how did screen was screenwriting always in the mix, or is that something that happened a little later on? Yeah, you know, I, I actually started. I I've written. I had written some pilots, but um, I don't know. I think actually for the for like the in the context of this conversation, you know, I um yeah this pilot that I wrote it's called 1993. Um, mm-hmm is very autobiographical, which is uh, mm-hmm. about, like, a fat gay kid in the 90s who's, like, not Mexican enough, not white enough, definitely not nice. definitely not straight enough. Um, and about, like, you know, when I, was a, when I was a kid, all I wanted to do was I wanted to be a child actor. Um, mm-hmm. So much so that I, uh, you know, I, I got a part as an extra in a movie that you can see me in right now. Um, uh, I was an extra in the movie National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon. Okay. I'm a featured extra. So like when I, and I say that. You're because in it. Like you're in it. I did a scene with me, this redhead kid, Emilio Estevez and Samuel wow. Jackson. Let's go. And the scene is, spoilers, um, they commandeer bikes from two kids and then the bikes explode. And I'm one of the kids that uh, that Emilio Espa steals my bike, and I'm like, like uh, the, wow, again, yeah, visual. Talk about moments. Talk about moments that feel like black tar heroin. Like <laughs> doing that must have felt like black tar heroin. And at the premiere, I got to meet Paul Abdul. They invited you to the premiere. Whoa. Yeah, because like because it was my mom's friend who like got me into the movie, and so I went to the premiere and was so excited. I met Paul Abdul. And then I like waited for the credits to see my name and they left me out of the credits on accident. No. Mm. So that was the first time this industry shit directly down my throat. (laughs) And I'm sure it wasn't the last. I'm sure it wasn't the last. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. (laughs) You should see my email. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I shudder to think you should see mine as well. You should see mine as well. That's beautiful, though. That's awesome. And so how long ago did you write this pilot? And I love that it's... I didn't even know that it was autobiographical. That's awesome. Yeah, I wrote it about, like, a year and a half ago. And, uh, and yeah, like, I, I won um, I won Best Pilot in uh, Fresh Voices, which is great, which, like, you know, um, they gave me, like, $500. I bought an espresso machine because uh, I'm a, okay. a grown-up. Um, and uh, and, and it, it's been good. You go turning your childhood trauma into an espresso machine. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that's that's now part of my all my resume. Turn childhood trauma into two Americanos daily. Um, that's a lot better than what some people turn their childhood trauma into. I know, like some people turn it into, um, you know, winning an election in 2016. Politics, Boom, bam, roasted. Stephen Col- Stephen Colbert, are you hiring? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Trump's bad. Hmm, hot take. 
Um, oh my god. No, but it was cool. It was like I loved writing it, but I also think like you know, it, it, again for the purposes of this podcast, I think like was cool about it to me is that like I I thought I still think the best comedy and the best writing is like the more personal you are, the more universal it becomes. And I think like absolutely when people like like I'm lucky enough people have responded really well to this and i think it's because like i wasn't like trying to write in somebody else's voice i wasn't trying to like like have like make a make a pilot that felt tidy and um and pristine and in the voice of what i think people are buying i was like this is what i want to see on tv and i think like even going back to earlier in our conversation like the thing that like I always wanted to be on TV my whole entire life. As a child, TV was my best friend. I watched every single episode of every single TV show on between, you know, 1985 and whatever. And I just never saw myself on TV. I never saw, in many ways, like I never saw, you know, like I never saw like someone who like was like kind of like living in the echo terrain between these two different cultures. I never saw um, gay men that like, you know, like were not even like desexualized or oversexualized like nobody lived in the in like in like and I think now we're seeing it a little bit in or, the real world <laughs> yeah exactly or also like honestly like show me a TV show about a fucking fat gay guy you know what I mean like I don't mm-hmm. see that mm-hmm. and so uh, writing that pilot like I think for me helped me as far as like like really thinking about my work not a, not only as a writer but as a stand up where I'm like tell your fucking jokes in your voice and not mm. tell, don't tell your jokes in what you think is going to like, is going to make people like, it's going to get you booked or whatever. Like I just am like, right. I have to be true to myself. And like, uh, and I think like writing that was really helpful for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's don't triangulate, like don't try to triangulate what you think you should say to get X, Y, Z. It's like, it's about being authentic, which I think it's a, it, it's an interesting thing because this the I think the word you used was ephemera like but the this like liminal space whatever between two cultures that we're that we're talking about that we've experienced I think that is such that experience in and of itself is such like a it's such a limbo and it's such a back and forth that I think makes it or at least for me in terms of the stuff I write or the stuff I talk about on stage like um, it's made it like. I feel like it's difficult to be authentic. And what we're talking about is like finding a way to be authentic through your art. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that for me, I felt so like not enough of this, not enough of that. And kind of like dancing between multiple things. Like I feel like it's taken an extra amount of time to figure out what is and isn't authentic to me. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And I think there's probably, and, and tell me if you experience this as well. It's like there's pressure from like, you know, the more myopic forces in the world for you to tell mm. the story of your experience through a very specific lens. Like they, like they really mm. just want to hear like, like they want to hear, you know, like stories of like, they don't, they don't want to, they don't want to hear like true authentic stories. They want to hear stories that are like, like pastiches that we've already seen before. Like they want to say, right. and they, it's like, you know, like when we go for auditions, like, like a lot of friends are going to auditions. They're like, yeah, like, like it is, it's never when people write characters of color on TV, it is always it's an accessory it's never they never really have their own like they don't have their their own arc they don't have their own musculature um and a lot of times when creators of color are asked to make things they're like okay cool 
tell us a story, but tell us this very specific story about like how you struggled and how the one thing is your identity. And it's just like it to me, that just seems like, I don't know. It just, it, it is, it's performing another person's version of what they think our culture is. And I think it's really boring and dumb. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more and I couldn't name names of existing media properties but I don't know I won't for whatever reason because I'd love to be hired someday yeah it's almost as dumb (laughs) as fucking math you know what I mean it's almost as dumb as algebra yeah absolutely and we don't need algebra we don't and I will abolish it I I I vote for that yeah (laughs) me and me in high school votes for that (laughs) oh my god Oh my god, amazing. Holy shit, it's actually been almost an hour. We should wrap it up. Can you let's do plugs. Can you tell us like how people can follow you, what they can how they can engage with your shit? Yeah, well you can find me on all the internets. Um I I am on Twitter I'm at, at the presidency, um our Instagram president. Um I'm doing a bunch of shows. You can you, if through there you can see like what I'm working on. Um I have a, a few shows coming up. I don't know when this comes out, but um but mostly next week. Oh, next week. Great. So, you know, um, I've got a bunch of shows this month, which I'm really excited about. Uh, but yeah, find me on the internet. Say hi. I, I would love to, I'd love to connect with y'all, especially uh, if they're your mom's friends. Ooh, yeah. My mom's friends will be there. They will be there. They will turn out. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Dude, thanks so much for having me. This is great. To get peace of mind, it wasn't hard to find. I got like I saw on the skin of yet's mind. Where I go to unwind from the grind and of all that I know, I promise you this. Material shit don't make you rich. Coys on my daddy out. And that's it for another episode of La Mezcla. I am currently trying to um, uh, consciously speak slower because I've been listening back to some of the episodes and it sounds like I'm just like an overly caffeinated weirdo at all times. So this is me attempting to slow down my New York speech for you, my listeners. Thank you so much to David Perez for coming on the show. Thank you to uh, Carly Hogendyke for always hooking me up and holding me down um, when it comes to this show and various other things. Thank you to you for listening. Please uh, spread the word about the show. There will be more episodes coming out soon, as well as a forthcoming Patreon link with a lot more info on how you can get involved uh, with this project and some of the other stuff that I'm working on. And there'll be lots of perks involved, lots lots of like me potentially making cooking videos for you. Who knows? I don't know. If you're a fan of this show, look out for that. And please be sure to follow David on all platforms. Um, his stuff is all uh, linked in the description below uh, your podcast platform i don't know i'm continuing uh my tradition of unhinged outros that clearly have not been pre-planned and clearly have uh maybe been done in one take possibly two but listen i hope you have a really great week uh please like rate review subscribe tell your friends about it um as always if you'd like to be on the show uh, i have a running list of people that i have submitted you can just dm the instagram account that's at la mezcla pod or you can email the email account uh la mezcla pod at gmail.com uh okay i love you (laughs) have a great week
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.